Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to Theory Lab, the American Cancer Society's research podcast. Got two ACS grantees here, both interested in cell fate. Both had recent publications. We thought it'd be fun to get them together to talk about their work. So I think the first part of this conversation is going to be a little more science-y. And the last, the last half um, will be more for a general audience. So we've got Dr. Haralabos Varelas, or Bob Varelas, and Dr. Sabrina Spencer. Dr. Varelas, would you mind introducing yourself real quick? Hi, I, I'm Bob Varelas. I'm an associate professor at Boston University. Thank you. And Dr. Spencer? Yeah. Hi, everyone. I am Sabrina Spencer. I am at the moment an assistant professor in the Department of Biochemistry, but as of next month, I've been promoted to associate professor, um, and I'm looking forward to the chat. Yay! That's good news. Let's keep that good news coming. So we'll start with you, Bob. You had a new paper. Well, I guess it's been a few weeks now, but it was on the development of squamous lung cancers, right? Would you mind taking us behind the scenes a little bit, telling us a bit about your paper? Yeah, sure. So our, our recent study focused on the early stages of lung cancer development, and it uh, offered some insight into mechanisms that drive the onset of a, the subtype of lung cancer uh, that you mentioned, which is lung squamous cell carcinomas, which generally arises in the airways of the lungs. Uh, there's evidence that lung squamous cell carcinomas arise from small growths of epithelial cells that develop uh, into lesions that are known as precancer lesions. And a hallmark of those lesions is uh, the aberrant architecture of the cells in those lesions. So epithelial cells in the lung normally exhibit uh, distinct architecture with defined tops and bottoms. It's known as apico-basal polarity. And uh, major risk factors for lung cancer, like cigarette smoke, exposure, has long been known to be associated with a loss of apico-basal polarity. Uh, so we asked the question in our study of what, you know, what are the consequences of disrupting polarity in the lung epithelium? and looked at that association potentially with, with lung cancer onset. And what we did is we, we tested this by, by using genetic animal models that allowed us to conditionally uh, disrupt polarity uh, in adult uh, lung epithelium. And we found that loss of polarity could drive a network of signals that initiate and sustain precancer lesion development, these lesions that resembled what you see in human patients. Uh, and what we identified is these central signals that were uh, activated by two transcriptional regulators that are known as YAP and TAS. So disruption of polarity led to the activation of these transcriptional regulators, and that initiated a gene expression program that drives the expansion of cells that resemble airway stem cells. And what was interesting is when we, when we analyzed that gene expression data and compared it to gene expression data that had been identified from uh, studies that have looked at precancer lesions in human patients and, and, and lesions that progress to lung cancer, we found that that YAP-TAS-regulated program tracks with that precancer with the precancer lesions. And interestingly, also was able, we were able to show that that associates with the progression of those lesions to more advanced stages, suggesting that that gene expression signature that's disrupted uh, in, 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 from aberrant polarity could serve as a biomarker for identifying early precancerous uh, lesions in, in, in human patients. When we explored that, that, that our data in more depth, what we found was that there was a network of signals downstream of YAPTAS that uh, could sustain the growth of the precancer cells, and that included uh, the activation of, a, of the ERB receptors. And what we found is that inhibit, inhibiting the ERB receptors using small molecules could 
uh, prevent or treat the precancer lesions in our preclinical studies. So collectively, I'd say our study offers uh, new insight into the early mechanisms of lung cancer initiation, and we identified signals that could be targeted uh, for intercepting lung cancer at the earliest stages of uh, initiation. That's kind of a quick summary of our, of, our, of our study. Quick summary, but a great summary. So thank you for that. Dr. Spencer, did you have any thoughts bubbling up as you listened to that? Yeah. Um, so I, maybe I missed it, but how did you disrupt the polarity in the, in the first place? So, so the way we did that is we targeted this protein, this transmembrane protein known as the crumbs uh, protein, which is a transmembrane receptor that organizes the apical domain of an epithelial cell. And what we had shown in previous work is that that receptor can organize a complex of proteins that, that brings together components of the HIPPO pathway, which regulate YAP and TAS uh, uh, localization. And that that polarity network could regulate HIPPO pathway signaling. So that was kind of the, 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 the knowledge that we had going into the study. And what we formulated was a hypothesis that disrupting crumbs, which would disrupt polarity of the cells, would lead to activation of the app and TAS, which is what we, we indeed saw. So is that crumbs uh, mutation, does that occur in patients or that was just an artificial way to initiate the system? Yeah, so it's a, it's a good question. So crumbs itself is not very frequently mutated, but what we have seen is that uh, it is very sensitive to changes in the environmental uh, uh, our, uh, the environmental niche of, 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 of cells. So um, one of the things that, that it responds to very rapidly is, is damage to the epithelium that can be induced by smoke, uh, cigarette smoke, for example. And what we've seen is that cigarette smoke exposure of long epithelial cells can lead to a dramatic change in, in, in crumbs levels and localization leading to loss of polarity. So we think it's one of the first responders to changes that's induced by, by damage, uh, environmental damage. So cigarette smoke could be viruses, it can be you know, physical damage to the epithelium would lead to damage to the crumbs, which would lead to damage epithelial, uh, epithelial polarity, which are then would drive signals that we've identified. Now, you know, that's likely happening in a regenerative setting where you have, if you have damage to the lung, you would have a regenerative uh, signals that would drive the appetite activity, which, which would be important for repair of the lung. But in, in chronic injuries, such as cigarette smoke, we hypothesize that that would lead to uh, damage in polarity that would not be able to correct itself similar to what we've done with our preclinical uh, experiments in the animal models, where we damage polarity, you know, using a genetic ablation, which doesn't correct itself. So that, that's kind of the underlying hypothesis is that in human patients, you have kind of this chronic damage that's happening to the polarity of the cells that eventually gets to a point where it can't correct itself and then drives the signals that we identify in our animal model. And how much of this project was done in, in mice versus tissue slices versus like what were all the different systems you used? Yeah. So so we used a combination of, of animal models and, and human tissues and human data. Uh, most of the ablation experiments were done with with animal models, but we, we were able to then look at human patient samples and correlate many of the findings that we made with our animal studies in the human patient samples, uh, including all the signals that we identified in our study. And then also 
looking at the gene expression data that's been available publicly from the various uh, studies looking at patient samples, we were able to then correlate some of the, the data that we identified from our animal studies in that in the human gene expression data. So it, we used a combination of, of, of a number of different approaches, but a lot of it relied on the animal studies uh, to make the the hypotheses that we that we tested in the human samples. And. And what, one last question, I guess. Um, so you said that those uh, ERB genes, did you say neregulin and one other one, are activated downstream of YAPTAS in the system. So would that um, would that mean that a precancerous lesion would be a candidate for treatment with some of these clinically approved, uh, you know, EGFR or ERB family receptor RTK drugs? That, or would that, that be premature? Yeah, no, that well, that would be the argument I would make uh, that those lesions would be very sensitive to ERB receptor inhibitors. So what we what we identified, as you mentioned, was that there's the many of the ligands for the ERB receptors were upregulated, including the regulin, and that activated the ERB receptors in those precancer lesions. And I, I would argue that ERB inhibition would be a way for treating precancer lesions and and and. Uh, potentially reversing them at the earliest stages before they take on oncogenic hits that can then progress, uh, which would be, you know, I think it would be a, an interesting way to be able to target uh, cancer therapy is to try to you know, take it at the earliest stages where things haven't really gotten to a point where, where um, you know, they progress in, in an uncontrolled fashion that, and they're hard, more hard to target, similar to you know, some of the cells that you've been studying where there's adaptive mechanisms that might be at play. Right. So, and sorry, I do have one more. So that upregulated ERB signaling does that lead to increased cell proliferation? Do you do you see that in your system? Like, can you connect that increased ERB signaling to actual increased cell cycling? So, so we have done those experiments. So, so the the stem cells in the lung are very sensitive to uh, neuregulin uh, levels. So, if you add neuregulin to cells, they'll proliferate much faster. Uh, one thing that I didn't really mention in the in the quick overview of the study that when I gave the quick overview is that what we identified was uh, in our study was both uh, intrinsic mechanisms that lead to changes in cell fate that that drive these stem cell properties, but also paracrine signals that drive the pre-existing expansion of of the stem cells. Uh, so neuregulin is one of those factors that probably drives the expansion of the current stem cells that are in the lung that leads to their uh, development into precancer lesions. So it does activate the proliferation of cells, and we've tested that, yes. Uh, but we think it also plays a role in cell fate as well, so maintaining that cell, uh, the stem cell fate of the lung. Very neat. Yeah, very neat. And maybe now's a good time to switch gears. Dr. Spencer, you also had a recent publication. Yours was on drug resistance in melanoma, so I'm looking forward to, to hearing you talk about this. Would you mind providing a brief overview of your findings? Yeah, sure. Um, so... We were interested in the origins of drug resistance and cancer, um, and we chose melanoma because it's a prototypical model of drug resistance uh, where the therapies, the targeted therapies, are initially extremely effective, but almost inevitably after you know, six months to two years, there's relapse. So it's a very uh, commonly used model for drug resistance because these cells are very adaptable. Um, well, so most people uh, historically in oncology have, who work on drug resistance, they've often looked at 
tumors that have already relapsed to try to understand why the original drug no longer works. So you can sequence the tumors and try to find mutations that explain why the drug no longer works, you know, two years out or something like that. But we were interested in the very earliest stages of drug treatment. So you take cancer cells and you treat them with the drug. Do you already see these adaptive features within just the first couple of days, uh, presumably non-genetic adaptation, which might set the scene or represent the inception of eventual drug resistance? Um, so we used uh, initially a number of melanoma cell lines, and one of our specialties is long-term single-cell time-lapse imaging. So we make uh, many-day movies of single cells with different fluorescent reporters, and we follow these cells in these movies and track them computationally to see what each cell does in response to the drug. Um, and we have a really great sensor um, for, it's a sensor for cyclin-dependent kinase 2 activity, but the way we use it in this paper is that it can distinguish cells that are actively progressing through the cell cycle from cells that are quiescent and have exited the cell cycle. Uh, so one of the very first projects uh, in the lab, when I first started the lab about seven years ago, um, I had a rotation student start uh, building up some of these tools, putting some of our sensors into melanoma lines and just making a f first few movies. And what we saw is that, um, so the melanomas that we're using are all driven by a mutation in the BRAF kinase. And so they're all very sensitive to these uh, BRAF inhibitors and um, like dibrafenib. And so if you film, if you treat cells with dibrafenib and film what happens, to these cells that are expressing the sensor, what you see is that initially the cells will complete the cell cycle that they've already committed to, and then they go into this long-lived quiescent state. So they'll exit the cell cycle and stop dividing, which is exactly what they should do because you've cut off their major proliferation pathway by using this drug. But then after a couple of days, you can see some cells re-entering the cell cycle, uh, a subset of cells. Um, that subset is dose dependent, so the higher you go with the dose, the fewer cells escape, but even at the very, very highest doses, you can never fully eliminate all the cycling cells. Um, and we became very curious about why you know, some subset of the cells can escape from drug and cycle and the, you know, the majority cannot and behave appropriately and remain quiescent. So to try to figure out what was special about those escaping cells, we call them SKPs, um, we use single cell RNA sequencing and we can light up the SKPs because we know they're in the cell cycle and they express cell cycle genes. So they light up as this little uh, population amongst the treated cells. And because we can single them out, we can look at the genes that are uniquely upregulated in SKPs compared to the well-behaving treated cells and compared to untreated cycling cells. Um, and so we got a number of interesting uh, pathway hits and we pursued two of them in this paper. Um, the first one was that we saw upregulation of P53 signaling, which of course is a DNA damage responsive pathway. Um, and that got us thinking, well, well, that looks like the cells are maybe damaged. Let's see if that's actually true. Um, by immunofluorescence. And so we did a number of uh, stains for different DNA damage proteins. And what you can see is that in the 
Untreated cells, the DNA damage levels are super low. For example, gamma H2AX is maybe the most classic. Um, and then in the treated cells, what you can see is a few cells lighting up with gamma H2AX, and most of them are dark. And it turns out, as predicted by the single cell RNA sequencing, that the ones that are lighting up with gamma H2AX are the escapees. Those are the ones that are in the cell cycle at that moment. So the cycling cells have gamma H2AX. The cells that are, are cycling in the presence of drug have gamma H2AX. The ones that are quiescent do not, and untreated cycling cells do not. So it seems to be something about the cells laboring through the cell cycle in the presence of a drug that's trying to block them from cycling that is causing the DNA damage. Um, but exactly what the trigger is, is something we're trying to figure out next, because obviously these targeted therapies are not meant to be mutagenic. They're not chemotherapies. They're supposed to be very selective um, you know, kinase inhibitors. So we think it's actually an indirect effect uh, of the drug of the cells that are, you know, coming out of a fairly deep quiescence and attempting to cycle with maybe not all the components that they, not having all the components they should have. The other thing we found in the single cell RNA sequencing that's related is activation of the integrated stress response and the transcription factor ATF4. So this pathway is a pretty broad stress response uh, pathway. It can sense a number of different types of stress and, um, then via ATF4 activate a suite of genes to try to help deal with the stress. And we saw upregulation of ATF4 transcriptional master regulator as well as ATF4 target genes um, when we validated the single cell RNA sequencing by immunofluorescence and RNA fish. And if you knock down ATF4 by siRNA, then you get about half as many SKPs. And Part and a good number of those cells, um, part of the reason, I would, a large part of the reason why you get fewer SKPs is because those cells are now dying by apoptosis. So it seems like ATF4 is enabling the survival of these SKPs, helping them get through this difficult cell cycle in the presence of drug. So that's, uh, you know, both of those have potential avenues for future therapeutic applications, you know, in terms of DNA damage, maybe you can deepen the damage because it's fairly unique to the cells that are escaping from the drug. If you can deepen the damage in those cells, maybe you could kill the SKPs. And similarly, if you could target the integrated stress response, you could block their adaptive survival mechanisms. And then the last piece of this paper um, was just to go a little bit broader. You know, how specific is this to, um, you know, these melanoma cell lines and to this BRAF inhibitor dibrafenib? So we've started expanding um, into uh, primary uh, ex vivo cultures, short-term cultures of melanoma patient biopsies, just to see if SKP, those cells have uh, this SKP phenomenon, and they do, and those SKPs also incur the same type of DNA damage. Um, and then we also checked uh, a number of other BRAF inhibitors that are used clinically, as well as MEK inhibitors like trametinib that's used clinically. And in all those cases, we always see a subset of cells still cycling at any time point you pick, at any dose you use, there's always a few cells still cycling, and those cells have signs of DNA damage. And so going back to the idea that 
these SKPs could represent the inception of drug resistance, you know, you would expect two properties from these SKPs. One is that they're prone to mutagenesis, which we do see, they're incurring DNA damage, so that means they'll mutate faster. And the other property is that they need to, over time, outcompete the non-SKPs, and we were able to show that as well. So, you know, we're, we're thinking now that these could be a seed population that's going to drive eventual drug resistance, and so kind of hearkening back to what Bob was saying, like if you can catch the problem early, in his case, it's the start of the actual cancer. In our case, it's the start of drug resistance and nip it in the bud. You know, maybe you can save a lot of headache later on. What a clear and elegant explanation. Thanks, Dr. Spencer. So, Dr. Varelis, it's a lot to digest. It's a lot from One Nature Comms paper. Where do you want to start? Right. It's a, it's a very interesting study. And I guess my, my first question is, how, how broad do you think some of the mechanisms that you, you identified are? Do you think you you know this would be similar in terms of escapees from other drug resistance? That, that have you, I guess, have you explored that at all? Yeah, so we actually got um, two new grants um, to fund the next stage of this project. Yeah, so I um, the grants are co-funded by the Damon Rendon Cancer Research Foundation and the Mark Foundation for Cancer Research. Um, so those two grants are going to support um, the next phase. So the next phase is, uh, I sort of alluded to it, one is to figure out the, the root cause of the DNA damage in these SKPs. Um, that's one, one goal. And another goal is just to see how broadly applicable these findings are. You know, in, in the extreme, you know, could all NAP kinase pathway inhibitors targeting, you know, the relevant driver mutations and the relevant cancer have this SKP phenomenon where there's always some residual cycling cells um, and do those residual cycling cells show this DNA damage? So we're testing that now um, with a number of different you know, driver mutations, so EGFR drivers, um, KRAS G12C drivers, et cetera, um, in the relevant cancer uh, cell lines. And so far, it seems that you know, we're, we're seeing a good number of situations where there's SKPs as we, you know, as we define themselves that are still cycling after just a couple of days of treatment um, in those contexts as well. So obviously the next you know, goal would be to see if this is happening in patients. So that's, that's kind of the, the, the follow-on phase to that part. Because another question is, relates to you know, wh wh why do you think some of the cells escape? versus others. Do you think that it, there's an underlying difference in the cells to begin with? Or is it something that's, you know, that the cells are, are taking on, you know, some cells just randomly are taking on some kind of adaptive mechanism to be able to respond to this? What, what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. That's the kind of million dollar question in a way. Um, we don't fully know. So there's a lot of work, for example, from Neil Rosen and colleagues that when you block the MAP kinase pathway, you release the negative feedback loops that you know feed back to the top of the pathway and you can actually reactivate the MAP kinase pathway with these drugs after a period. So we, and we do see evidence for that. So it could be what's what they call this like paradoxical signaling. Um, so it could be partly that, that you get this, you know, paradoxical uh, partial boost of MAP kinase signaling that, that gets the cells, some cells back into the cell cycle. Why some and not others? We don't know. It could be stochasticity in the 
you know, levels of the components of the signaling pathway. Um, but, you know, there is some work also from, for example, Arjun Raj, who has found pre-existing determinants of cell fate. So like uh, also working in melanoma, they have a particular cell line where some rare cells, like one in a thousand cells, just has super high levels of NGFR um, or EGFR. And if you fact sort those cells out, those cells are more resistant to drug than the regular cells. So he has found evidence in his system for some pre-existing markers. In our cell lines we use, we don't see that um, kind of rare cell heterogeneity for NGFR. Um, so we think there's, you know, it, it could be just cell to cell differences in the ability of cells to adapt, you know, like I said, maybe pre-existing but stochastic and very transient differences in the level of say ATF4 at the time of drug treatment. And if you hit that same cell, you know, two days later, it, you know, wouldn't escape because it wouldn't have had enough ATF4 to kick off the stress adaptive, you know, uh, integrated stress response pathway. It's tricky to study because you need to know the before and the after. Uh, you need to know the levels of of proteins, you know, A through Z prior to drug treatment and then follow those cells into the future to see what they do. And I mean, really the only way to do that is time-lapse imaging, or maybe if you can isolate them by flow cytometry with a surface marker. Um, but you know, you gotta, you have to be lucky that your protein of interest is on the cell surface. So, you know, that's something we always have our eye out for pre-existing differences. And in our system, we haven't really found any. I, you may have done this experiment in, in, in the publication. I, I may have missed it, but ha, did you end up taking your your scapees and and sorting them out, letting them rest, and then re retreating them with the drug to see if they respond the same as originally, or maybe yeah. they again show a heterogeneous response? Right. So that was one of the early experiments we did because we wanted to know. That's the best way if you don't to test for some pre-existing epigenetic drug resistant type state. So, yeah, so what we did was we put in um, a cell cycle reporter, uh, one of the Fuji cell cycle reporters that turns on when cells are cycling. And so we hit the cells with drug for three days. And so then most of the cells are quiescent and just a few of the SKPs are cycling and they light up blue. And you can flow sort that the SKPs from the non-SKPs in that way. And then we plate them back down on uh, two separate wells. And then we give them a drug holiday where they can revert, <laughs> but, uh, if they, you know, rest, re maybe revert back to the parental state. And um, so the idea is that if the, what allowed the cells to escape in the first place was some genetic mutation or long-lived epigenetic state, then when you hit those SKPs the second time, they should fare much better than the non-SKPs. Um, but if it's a transient feature, then they will reset to the parental state. And what we saw was the latter. So we give them the holiday and then we treat them again and we film them and we can plot their growth curves over time. And the um, SKPs and non-SKPs, when they were hit a second time with the drug after the holiday, look just like cells that have never been treated before, um, just like the parental cells. So in that context, even just a 24-hour drug holiday, they revert to the parental state. 
But <laughs> there's more to it than just that because. If you, you know, if you keep the drug in and you don't give them the holiday, then the SKPs do outgrow over time. So if you keep the drug pressure on, whatever adaptive mechanisms they're using kind of get burned in. And the SKPs over time will slowly outcompete the non-SKPs. But if you let them relax, then they revert, um, it, you know, at least with these short drug treatments. Thank you for that. What a rich discussion of your work, uh, melanoma resistance. And I think, you know, so far it's pretty wide ranging conversation and it's pretty evident why uh, we funded you both with American Cancer Society research grants. You're doing exciting work. And, and I wondered if before we let you go, you could talk briefly about the impact of ACS funding on your research. Uh, Dr. Varelis, if I could start with you. Yeah, it was integral to the project that we were working on. It, I think the the ACS funding at the time when I got the funding, especially you know early stages, was critical for taking on new projects, taking some risks on generating new animal models that would have been impossible to generate otherwise. So you know I think it was it was critical for anything that we did in the lab, and and I think especially for early investigators, it was for me especially it was really important to be able to have that funding to be able to start projects that wouldn't be able to start otherwise. So, you know, I, I thank the American Cancer Society for, for the funding. It was, it was really important to me. And Dr. Spencer, I know the paper we discussed today isn't associated with your ACS-funded research, but we do fund your lab. And I wonder if you could uh, talk briefly about the impact of American Cancer Society funding on, on your work. Yeah, so um, I currently have one of the ACS Research Scholar grants. Um, I don't know if that's the same one you have, Bob. It is, yeah. It Same is. one. Um, yeah, so that that grant funds some of our kind of cell cycle proliferation quiescence decisions, like fundamentals of how cells choose between proliferation and quiescence in both a normal and a cancer uh, context, and what signals cells integrate to make that decision. And that's a very core uh, part of my lab. That's what I founded my lab on before we got into this melanoma drug resistance, we were doing kind of proliferation, quiescence, cell cycle commitment basics. And that's um, that's what is funded by this grant. And that has, uh, you know, the funding has been amazingly useful for, for pushing that research forward. And I think, I mean, that's probably what people know me for now, because we're only just getting into this drug resistance, this nature communications paper is our very first paper on that topic. Um, and so I have a number of graduate students who are funded by this ACS uh, grant, and we've been able to explore a number of different pathways and sometimes competing pathways that cells um, integrate and consider when making the proliferation quiescence decision. So that's allowed me to, you know, to to push forward the the some of the basic uh, cell cycle mechanisms that. I'm very uh, passionate about using our, you know, single cell technology. So, and getting that funding fairly early on, I think also, I mean, besides being able to fund the work has been helpful for the credibility for getting additional grants. I mean, I think people assume that if you get, you know, they see one of these um, on your CV, then they, you get the benefit of the doubt that, okay, this person must know what they're doing. Um, and maybe subconsciously, I think it makes it easier to for reviewers to um, be positive about funding you know, a, a next project that you want to submit somewhere else. So that has been great. And I'll also know I had the 
American Cancer Society postdoctoral fellowship, which uh, certainly helped me get this faculty position. So I'm very grateful to the foundation. There we go, two-time grantee. That's great to hear. Um, well, thanks so much to both of you. We talked a lot about adaptive mechanisms today, so I hope I hope this summer you've got some nice adaptive mechanisms to help you enjoy life every day. Yeah, I need them. Uh, you need them. It's going to be a good year, though. It's going to be a good year. So thanks to both of you, and have a wonderful day. Thank you. Thank you. Bye.